Section 8 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Examination of the Legends of the Kings, Part 1. From what has been said before, it is clear that the story of the Roman kings is not based even indirectly upon contemporary records of any kind. The only claim which it can possibly make upon our acceptance is that some portions of it embody a faint national tradition, preserved for many generations without the aid of writing. What these portions are we have no external criteria to indicate. We must therefore examine the substance of the traditions in the hope that we may succeed in extricating a residuum of truth hidden under a vast superincumbent mass of fiction. The most easily accomplished task is the rejection of all that is absolutely fabulous. Herein the credulous analysts themselves have preceded us. Even they could not make their minds to believe in the miraculous conception of the twins and in the equally miraculous suckling she-wolf. They tried to explain away these miracles in a rationalistic way by suggesting that some lover of Ray Sylvia assumed the form of Mars and that a woman belonging to the disreputable class vulgarly known as the she-wolves, Lupi, acted as the nurse of the infant twins. This mode of explaining away miracles has lost all favor with modern critics. It is evident that the miracle in the story is not a casual external ornament, which can be cast aside, but that it is the very German center of the story, the most important and essential part of it, and that without it, the narrative is nothing but an empty shell. It is therefore absolutely impossible to save the old miracles of the birth and preservation of Romulus and his brother. In a like manner, his ascension into heaven must be sacrifice, though that also was at one time sagaciously supposed to be the poetical version of a very plausible event, namely his murder by his enemies during the sudden darkness of a thunderstorm. The fact that his body could not be found after the storm was easily accounted for. The senators who murdered him cut it up and carried the pieces away under their togas. We need not rehearse the vain conceits with which the other miracles were turned into plausible history. They are all equally futile, and we have no alternative left but to draw our pen through the whole of them, though thereby we reduce the substance of the so-called history of the kings very considerably and deprive it of those parts which make it most lively and attractive. Not only the stories which offend against physical laws must be expunged, we must, in the interest of truth, be equally merciless where the stories are incompatible with moral laws. For the world of human feelings and actions is governed by laws as constant as the laws of outward nature, though they are more subtle in their working and less clear to our comprehension. The statement that during the forty-three years of Numa's reign Rome enjoyed uninterrupted peace cannot be looked upon as anything but a fiction or a dream. No waking and sober mind could imagine that the turbulent Romans and their neighbors, who in the time of Romulus which preceded, and in the time of Tullus Hostilius which followed, hardly sheathed their swords, would, out of respect for a pious and peaceful king, sit down quietly to work and pray for forty-three years. The peace of Numa's reign is a miracle not less startling than his intercourse with the Nymphageria, 
or his trick of intoxicating the god Faunus by pouring wine into the fountain of which he drank. Objections hardly less weighty than those just mentioned have been raised against the truthfulness of the stories of the kings on the score of chronology. The period assigned to the seven kings embraces 240 years, which is an average of 34 years for each king. Considering that four of the seven kings died by violence, and that one was expelled fifteen years before his death, it is not possible that such a long period should be covered by the reigns of seven elective monarchs. The first to draw attention to this circumstance was Sir Isaac Newton, and now there is no difference of opinion on the point. It suffices to compare the average duration of the reigns of the doges of Venice who were like the Roman king's elective princes. In five centuries, from 805 to 1311 AD, 40 doges occupied the ducal chair. This gives an average of 12 years and a half to each, or not much more than one-third of the duration assigned to a Roman king. The Roman figures, therefore, may safely be pronounced to be contrary to the laws of nature. Difficulties of a like kind arise when we scrutinize the data which refer to the lives and reigns of the two Tarquinii. The elder of them is said to have left his native town because it offered him no scope for his ambition. He must therefore have been a man at least approaching middle age. He was then married and removed with his wife Tanaquil to Rome. Here he lived sixteen years under Ancus Martius. His own reign lasted thirty-eight years. He was then murdered at the instigation of the sons of Ancus, who by the by had waited patiently these thirty-eight years before they tried to recover their father's inheritance. Tarquinius must have been upwards of eighty years old when he died, and his wife more than seventy. Yet his children are represented as of tender age. If we assume that the eldest of them was ten years old on the death of his father, he had reached the age of fifty-four when he rose against Servius Tullius and hurled him down the steps of the Senate House, acting like a man in the first vigor of youth and heat of passion. But if the story, inconsistent with itself, represents the children of the elder Tarquin as sufficiently grown up at the beginning of the reign of Servius to enable the latter to marry them with his own children, the subsequent events become still more incredible. Tarquin II must then have approached the venerable age of seventy when he rose against his father-in-law, must have been more than ninety when he besieged Ardea, and a hundred and eight or ten when he fought in the battle of Lake Regulus. These are reflections which do not disturb the poet or the narrator of legends, but the historian is bound to have an eye to the computation of years. Consequently, the inherent improbabilities of the story roused the suspicion even of some ancient analysts, and Piso bethought himself of a means of remedying the fault. He inserted a whole generation between the elder and the younger Tarquin, and made the latter the grandson instead of the son of the former. This ingenious little trick of leisure domain met with the approbation of Dionysius, but Livy more honestly tells the story in the old unadulterated form, leaving to his readers the task of reconciling it with the laws of nature. The objections which we have raised hitherto to the credibility of the ancient story are so obvious and palpable that they have presented themselves even to minds endowed with a very moderate amount of critical acumen, and in ages long preceding the birth of historical criticism. 
yet there are other objections in reserve perhaps less patent at the first glance but not less destructive of our faith in the traditional story the narrative proceeds on the assumption that the roman people was formed by romulus into a distinct national body out of heterogeneous and as it were atomic elements the individuals who compose it flock together from different quarters and are moulded into a political society by the will of an omnipotent lawgiver they had no laws before the organization of the state the laws which regulate private and public life are all the creation of romulus in like manner the first settlers had hardly a national religion it was numa who told them how to pray and worship who appointed priests sacrifices and all that belongs to a public worship the presumption upon which these accounts rest is altogether erroneous the study of a great variety of nations has shown us that people who live together in any sort of community might just as well be supposed to be without a common language as without common political institutions and without religious notions and worship none of these essential conditions for the existence of man can be said to have been at any time artificially made for them by any prophet or lawgiver the utmost that legislators can effect is to modify to improve to purify existing systems and institutions to none of them that we know of in history was it given to find a void which he could fill with a theory of his own invention laws are not made but grow even now in our time of restless and over-prolific parliamentary law-making new laws mark only the endeavours of legislators to find the forms in which the general feeling of justice is to be expressed or in which new wants felt by the community are to be satisfied under public authority if we approach the history of the kings with such convictions we shall at once see that it cannot lay the least claim to authenticity with the aid of two new sciences comparative mythology and comparative philology we can trace back the religion and the social institutions of rome to an age which preceded the separation of the latin race from the sabine nay further back than that to the period when the forefathers of italians and greeks and of all the nations of the Aryan stock dwelt together and were bound together by unity of language religion and social institutions the received story breaks down in the very attempt to carry out the principle upon which it proceeds it wishes to represent numa as the founder of the roman religion but it makes romulus the son of a national god and of a priestess of vesta a goddess whose worship was as original and essential as the domestic hearth is for the establishment of a house all the stories therefore referring to the origin of roman institutions which whether religious political or social are anterior to contemporary history or genuine tradition must be looked upon as fabrications of a later age as endeavours to divine the mysterious process by which law and religion spring into existence a great portion of the matter that fills up the early history is entirely made up of such endeavours they take the form of myths and have been properly called ideological myths that is myths accounting for causes wherever an old ceremony rite or custom presented itself which seemed to be susceptible of an explanation a story was invented which satisfied a credulous age as to its origin and meaning to give an illustration of such ideological myths 
we will glance at the story of the rape of the Sabines. It was a custom at Roman nuptials for the bridegroom to pretend to carry off the bride by force from her parents' home. A similar custom is found in Greece, and no doubt prevailed very largely, if not universally, in antiquity, as traces of it can be discovered even now in many parts of Europe. To what extent this simulated violence was the remnant and reflex of real violence used in still earlier ages we need not now inquire. It suffices to know that the custom existed. This custom seemed to require an historical explanation. How and when, people asked, did it originate? An answer was found in the story of the rape of the Sabines. It was said that the custom originated in the violence committed by Romulus, whereas the relation of cause and effect is the very reverse. The story originated in the custom, not the custom from the story. And this is, therefore, not a genuine tradition of a real event, but a fiction pure and simple, or an ideological myth. Such fictions were at first shamefaced and modest. At least they did not pretend to historical truth. Therefore the number of the Sabine women carried off by the Romans was stated to have been thirty, that is to say, as many as there were curies at Rome. In this form it was on the very face of it a fable intended to please and to amuse. But by and by such fables were worked up into historical statements. It was plain that the number of thirty was too small. What were thirty women among so many men? Consequently, some ingenious analysts gravely asserted that the number of the Sabines, all counted, was exactly 527. Who could now doubt the accuracy of the report? It was evident that the number must have been taken from a memorandum entered by Romulus himself, or at least by the first Pontifex Maximus in the public archives. End of section 8.